Thank you, Terry. If you would uh, grab your Bibles, stand with me for our scripture reading this morning. Turn to Malachi. We'll be in Malachi chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 6 through 14 as Pastor Bruce continues this series from the book of Malachi. We'll be reading once again Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. If you don't have a pew Bible, or a Bible, you can use your pew Bible in front of you, page 545. And follow along as I read Malachi 1, verses 6 through 14. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, and that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food, is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? A curse be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. Thank you how it changes us. We ask you to be with Pastor Bruce as he brings message this morning, Lord, out of the book of Malachi, that we would have open hearts and minds to learn and apply to our lives how we can honor you, serve you, and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, question. How many of you have a hard time getting out of bed in the mornings? All right, wow, look at the honesty in this auditorium. That's amazing. You, and you especially have a hard time getting out of bed when it's cold outside. And, and you turn the heat down in the house, and so you're snuggled up under the covers, and you're like, the alarm goes off. I don't want to get out of bed right now. And so you hit the, the snooze button. How many really relate to that one? All right. All right. Great. I love it. A man was having a hard time getting out of bed one Sunday morning. I won't ask if you have a hard time getting out of bed on Sunday mornings. Anyways getting out of bed get up it's time to get ready for church he just grumbled and replied I don't want to go to church today those people at church don't like me I don't want to go and the wife persisted you have to go to which he responded give me three good reasons why I should go and the wife answered because it's Sunday I'm your wife and you're the pastor now get up I must admit, there are days I sometimes feel that way. But today is not one of those days. Now, as we continue in our series in the book of Malachi, I do sometimes wonder, as we read through this book, and you begin to get a feel for Malachi and his message to the people, because it's not a really a hap hap happy message. And you wonder if the prophet Malachi ever wanted to just stay snuggled under the sheets and stay in bed, instead of getting up and proclaiming this message from God to the people of God. Our text today that Zach read for us is, is all about worship. Do you realize how you worship says a lot about who you worship? Or at least what you think of the one you worship. And so the question for us this morning is this, what does our worship, what does your worship, my worship, what does our worship reveal about our love for God? God's message through Malachi is, is that worship matters. 
It matters greatly to God. And as Christ followers, it should matter greatly to us. But the question is why? Why does worship matter? Why does it matter to God so much? And why should it matter to us who are followers of Jesus Christ? Well, here's why worship matters. And if you're, you're welcome to take notes if you want to. There's an insert in your bulletin. Uh, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. But notice the purpose. Here's, here's the reason worship matters so much. The purpose of worship is to glorify the name of God. That is the sole purpose of worship, is to glorify God's name. Now, here's what you have to understand. God is absolutely committed to bringing glory to His name among all the peoples of the world. You say, where do you get this, Bruce? Well, notice in your Bibles here. Notice in chapter 1 of Malachi. And look down at verse 11, where God Himself says, For from the rising of the sun, even to His going down, My name shall be great among the Gentiles. In other words, all the peoples of the world. In every place, incense shall be offered to My name, and a pure offering for My name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And then, here in verse 14, God says, For I am a great king. And my name is to be feared among the nations. And so, God's name is important. The purpose of our worship, both corporately, when we come together like this on a Sunday morning, but also individually with our lives from Monday through Saturday, and how we live as followers of Christ, our purpose is to glorify the name of God the arc of history, and the trajectory of redemption is to make God's name known throughout the world. God's name is so great, it's so glorious, that everything is moving toward the ultimate display of His majesty and His might. When the greatness of God's name is in its rightful place in, with God's people, listen, it becomes the very motivating reality for God's people. In other words, as God's people, as Christ followers, we should be marked by the name of God. What's more, the vision of God's name. When we hold that before us, as God holds it for us, that vision of becoming great among all the nations, as will one day happen. And it's where history is moving towards. Listen, that defines our purpose in life, but it also defines the essence of our worship. You could say, glorifying God's name, it becomes the air we breathe as God's children, as followers of Jesus Christ. But this was not the air God's people were breathing in the days of Malachi. Israel was no longer zealous for worship because they were no longer zealous for God's name. And that is always the heart of the problem when people lose interest in worshiping God. We have lost interest in the name of God. We're no longer zealous for worship because we're no longer zealous for God's name. And consequently, instead of glorifying God's name, the people in Malachi's day were despising God's name. But the people didn't see this. They were blind to it. They didn't see their worthless worship. And so what Malachi the prophet does is he sets up this stark contrast between the greatness of God's name and the worthlessness of their worship to help them see what God sees in their worship, in their lives. God says the people were despising His name. And folks, this was a grievous sin in God's eyes. But what does this mean? To despise God's name. Well, this word despise, it's an attitude of ongoing disrespect. It refers to the act of conveying insignificance or worthlessness upon an object or an idea or even an individual. And in this case, it was the name of God. 
In the present context, the priests were guilty of despising God's name. And God's name, what you have to understand, represents the totality of who God is. It represents God's person. It represents His character, His very nature, and His works. And so when we say the, the name of God, we're talking about the person and works of God. And so the priest, and because of their failure, the people too were despising who God was and what God had done for them. God wasn't important and significant to them anymore. He wasn't breathtaking to them anymore. And this attitude towards God was now reflected in their worship of God. They were offering Him, if you can imagine, worthless worship. When God is worthy of meaningful worship. So let's dive into this. Let's break it down. Let's look at the people in Malachi's day and how God confronts them through the prophet Malachi. And let's look at it, not just them, but let's evaluate it in light of our own worship as Christ followers here today. Number one, we honor God's name with meaningful worship. The first thing God does in confronting the people is He establishes the foundation for why He is worthy of honor. God declares at the beginning here in verse 6, He makes this statement. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. You know what all the people said in response to that? Absolutely, God, you're right. They were, they were in wholehearted agreement with God when He made this statement to them, they would have said, yes, Lord, this is what the law said, and, and this is how things ought to be. A son should honor his father, and a master should honor his master. I mean, a, a, a servant should honor his master. You see, they knew the Ten Commandments. And so they even knew, knew the Fifth Commandment, which said, honor your father and mother. So they were in agreement with this. This was not an issue in their day like it is in our day. But God follows this with two rhetorical questions that caught them off guard, that caught them by surprise in verse 6 when God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Now the people... As I said, they're not expecting this. You see, they thought God was purely talking about relationships on the vertical level. I mean, on the horizontal level. Human relationships. But God turned it into their spiritual relationship with Himself. And the accusation that God is making is crystal clear. They were not honoring God. They were not fearing God. Which says a lot about what they really thought about God as their father and their master. Now, what should we learn from this? Here today, what should we take away from this? How can we apply this to our own lives? Well, there's two things we should learn about the worthiness of God. First of all, God is worthy of honor as our majestic father. He is worthy of honor as our majestic father. Unlike our earthly fathers, God the Father is perfect. And to that we say... Amen, hallelujah, awesome. Listen, our God, as our Heavenly Father, He perfectly loves. He perfectly provides. He perfectly disciplines. He perfectly guides. He perfectly comforts. As our majestic Father, God is worthy of our honor. Number two, God is worthy of respect. It's our Supreme Master. Unlike the leaders of this world in which we live, God is a perfect master or leader or ruler. He perfectly rules. He is perfectly wise. He is perfectly just. And He is perfectly powerful. He doesn't abuse His power. He doesn't abuse His position. Therefore, as our supreme master, God is worthy of our respect or our fear. And so God is worthy now. What He's saying to us is that He is worthy of both our honor and our respect, not just because of what He can do for us. We don't worship God because of just what 
he can do for us. He's not our genie that we call up to. He's not in a little bottle here that we rub and come out and we, hey, God, please me, make my life comfortable, easy. No, no. God is worthy of our honor. He's worthy of our respect because of who he is. God is our majestic father. God is our supreme master. As Timothy Keller, pastor in New York City, writes, God is not just wise and loving, but he is gloriously or surpassingly so. He is the best and greatest in every quality. He is not just important and worthy of your adoration, submission, and attention, but gloriously or supremely so. He is infinitely more worthy of your adoration, submission, and attention than anyone or anything. Every other being in this world is less than nothing in comparison with His glory. God's point is this. He's making a comparison, a contrast here, and he's saying that if earthly fathers and earthly masters deserve honor and respect, which is true, they do, then how much more does our majestic father and our supreme master deserve our honor and respect? And to emphasize this point, I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice the name Malachi calls God in verse 6. Did you happen to catch that when Zach read the text for us? It says, the Lord of what? Host. The Lord of host. Now, how many of you have read through the book of Malachi so far? I threw out that challenge two weeks ago. Good, many hands. Yeah, let me encourage you to continue. Read through. Here's the challenge. Read through at least once, better yet, Read through the book of Malachi once a week. And as you read through it, you will notice this name for God repeated 24 times in the book. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. And it's repeated eight times in just these nine verses here this morning where God is called the Lord of hosts. This word host is a military term. It refers to great numbers of armies. And in this case, it refers to the armies of the Lord. So what's the point? What Malachi wants us to see in this name is that God, as our Father, as our Master, listen, He has infinite authority. He has supreme power. God is majestic. He is supreme. Therefore, as the Lord of hosts, who is sovereign over all the universe, listen, He is worthy of our honor and our respect. But the people, the people were not honoring God with meaningful worship. And so God declares to them, where is my honor? Where is my respect? You're despising my name. And the people are so spiritually blind that they respond, in what way have we despised your name, Lord? Now before moving on, consider this question with me. Is your life as evidenced by your worship one that God would say is honoring to him. Malachi is reminding us that we honor God's name with meaningful worship, which also means, notice this, point number two, that we dishonor God's name with worthless worship. God declares, he declares it to the people, you're despising my name. And the people respond, in what way have we despised your name? And like some of our own teenagers, they pleaded ignorance. Can you imagine that? They claimed the audacity of them. They actually claimed, God's people actually claimed they didn't know what God was talking about. Which is never a good thing to do when the Lord is confronting you, because the Lord always knows what he's talking about. And so God shows them. 
in His grace, in His mercy, He shows them what He's talking about. He shows them how they were despising His name. Look at it in verse 7. He tells them, you offered defiled food on my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. Let me interpret this, or reinterpret it. Basically, God says, just look at my altar. You want to know how you're despising my name? Just take a look at the altar. You're offering me defiled food. That's how you're despising my name. And this was no minor sin. This word defiled, it means polluted, unclean, or even contaminated. In other words, God was saying that the very sacrifices that they were offering Him were unacceptable. God's saying they're polluted. The animal sacrifices you're bringing me to burn on the altar here before me in atonement for your sins, they are contaminated. And of all people, the priest, the priest of that day, should have realized that God takes his sacrifices very seriously. In fact, later on, God says in verse 10, who is there even among you who would shut the door so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? In other words, it's worthless. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. In other words, God's not going to accept worthless worship from His people. The bottom line is the people were dishonoring God's name. How? With their vain or worthless worship. You see, they were defiling God's altar and they were taking it lightly. But in truth, they were despising God and taking Him lightly. You see, they didn't love God enough to honor Him with meaningful worship. And consequently, their worthless worship was rejected by God. So how do we and how did they get to this point in their life? I mean, how did they in Malachi's day, the people there, God's people, and how do we as God's people today, how do we get to this point in our life where we are dishonoring God's name with worthless worship? Because after all, this doesn't just happen overnight. This happens gradually over time. So how do you get from here to here with worthless worship? Well, notice this. Look at this in your notes on the screen. The origin of worthless worship, it always begins with a failure to remember the greatness of God. You see, the Israelites' worship is worthless because God is no longer great to them. The reason God is so repulsed by worthless worship is because it fails to remember, it fails to recognize the very greatness of God, who He is and what He has done for us. And so seeing and remembering the greatness of God, let me tell you, is crucial to the worship of God. This is why Malachi redirects the people's attention, refocuses them. But notice, he doesn't refocus their attention on the gentleness of God, but rather on the greatness of God, on his majesty, on his supremacy, on his authority and his sovereignty. Remember, God's name is what? Great, whether his people acknowledge it or not. God says, if you won't, Israel, listen, it will be great among the Gentiles and all the nations of the world. So how does this then? That is forgetting God's greatness. Failing to remember God's greatness in our own hearts. How does all of this then lead or cause us to bring him worthless worship? Well, it makes a person bored with God and excited about the world. Think about it. If you fail to see the greatness of God, then everything you see in this world with your human eyes 
all of a sudden it becomes very, very exciting. It becomes very enticing. And we're more excited about the things that the world has to offer us than we are about the very greatness of God in our lives. As Pastor John Piper puts it, if you can't see the sun, you will be impressed with a street light. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. You see, in a very real way, our worship, maybe you've never thought of it this way before, but our worship of God is a declaration of God's worth or at least what we value God to be, what we deem him worthy of. You see, if our worship is meaningful, then we are declaring that God is meaningful. But if our worship is worthless, then we, in essence, are declaring that God himself is worthless. So how do we know, though? How do we know when our worship is worthless? Well, I love God, and I love the book here of Malachi, because God is so practical. Oh, he is practical. He knows his own people in Malachi's day, just as God knows our, his people today. And so what does God do? In his graciousness, in his love, he identifies for the people, as he does for us, the essence of worthless worship, what it is, what it looks like. So let's dive in. The essence of it, number all, first of all, worth, worship is worthless when we give God what's left over, not what's best. You see, the people were giving God their leftovers. Instead of offering the best of their flocks, the people were bringing their worst animals to the priest to offer as sacrifices for their sins. And God calls them on the carpet for it. He confronts them head on. Notice it in verse 8. He says, And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Can you imagine bringing God animals that were blind, lame, and sick? Can you, can you imagine that? The audacity to bring God, who is your supreme, supreme master and gracious, majestic Heavenly Father, and you're now going to bring him blind animals, Lame animals, sick animals. And yet that's exactly what the people were doing in the worship of God. They were offering God sick sheep and gross goats. They were offering as sacrifices the very animals that were likely to die the next day. They were offering him worthless animals, which means they were not really sacrificing anything at all in their worship of God. In fact, they were essentially saying that God was not worthy of their best. This was a serious charge that God's bringing to their attention because under the sacrificial requirements of the law in the Old Testament, the people were supposed to bring what kind of sacrifices? What kind of animals? Animals that were healthy. Animals that were without spot or blemish. In other words, perfect animals. The best animals that they had in their flocks. Now, don't miss what God says about this. About the people bringing him what's left over instead of what's best. In verse 8, God asks them, is it not evil? In fact, God says it twice. Is it not evil? And the answer should have been obvious. Absolutely it was evil. In fact, it's embarrassing that God would even have to point this out to both the priest and the people. God was telling them, listen, you're not cheap. You're just evil. You see, the issue is not that they didn't have healthy animals to give. It's that they wouldn't give their best animals. And God says, that's evil. You're not cheap, you're just evil. 
Why? Because God looks at the heart, not the bank account, or in this case, the barnyard of the children of Israel. Understand, it's out of the overflow of our heart that we give to God. In fact, the value of any offering that we bring to Him is determined by the heart of the one who is offering it. And their hearts were evil, not cheap. How many of you have cheap friends? Go ahead, you go out to eat, and they're like totaling up the bill, want to divide it exactly between the party of four, including tip. I mean, to the penny. Yeah, I have some friends. Actually, I have some family members like that. <laughs> and my brother is raising both his hands back there. In today's language, we would say that's frugal. Yeah, God's not calling them on being frugal. God's calling them on the evil intentions of their heart because giving is always a heart issue. And to reveal this heart issue in the people in Malachi's day, God tells them, and I love the, the, just the humorness of God, the, how ironic he is. He tells them, hey, you think you can get away with this with me? Why don't you try doing that with your governor? Look what he says in verse 8. Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? No, no political leader of that day, as in our day, would be pleased with his people paying their taxes with some lame or sick animals. They would not even try to get by with such a thing. Why? Because it would never be accepted. And yet God's people were doing it with their majestic Father and Supreme Master, which begs the question for us this morning, are we... Are we, as God's children, Christ followers, that's what we proclaim to be, are we trying to pass off on God things we wouldn't dare pass off on human superiors, such as our own government or even our employers? But yet we're trying to pass that attitude off on God in our worship. Notice what Malachi says next in verse 9. He says, but now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably? In other words, Malachi's being a little sarcastic here. He sarcastically tells the people, and while you're giving God the leftover animals, go ahead. In fact, go for it. Go ahead and ask God's blessing and favor on your lives, and let's see how God responds to you while you're asking God's blessing on your life at the same time you're offering him your leftovers. Let's see how that works for you. See, there, there's a contradiction going on among God's people here. They were expecting the blessings of God, but they weren't willing to give God their best. And so now when problems came, they're like, what's up with that? God, I, you're not blessing me. You're, you're doing this. You're not there. You're not, you're not coming through. And God's like, are you serious? And just in case they don't realize how God will respond, God tells them how he'll respond. Look at verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 10. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors? so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. Wow. Whoa. Holy cow. I'd say our worship matters to God. Just imagine if you got a text from God that said, I have no pleasure in you. <laughs> a text from God, it shows up on your phone. I have no pleasure in you. When you were hoping all the while, that text from God would say, you're my favorite child. Remember back in verse 2? Remember last Sunday? In verse 2, God has already told the people what? I have loved you. And it was an everlasting love. But here, here, God is now telling the people, I have no pleasure in you, nor will I accept your offering. It's kind of like when Darla and I get in a conflict and we're mad at each other. If you can believe this, she will tell me, Bruce, I love you, but I don't like you right now. 
And that's kind of what God's doing with his people. He's like, hey, I love you. That's never going to change, but I have no pleasure in you. I do not enjoy you right now. In fact, God says, if this is the way that you're going to worship me, if you're going to bring me worthless animals from evil hearts, then just shut the doors. Why? Because it's worthless worship. It's in vain. From God's perspective here, no worship, if you can imagine God saying this, no worship is better than worthless worship. It's better to lock the temple doors, put out the fire in the altar, and keep the people out than to dishonor God's name with our worthless worship. Now, to bring this point home for our own application, here's a question. Jesus was not a lame sacrifice. So why would we think that God wants a lame sacrifice from us as his people who have been redeemed by his perfect sacrifice in his son, Jesus Christ? Today, we no longer offer God animal sacrifices. Thank you, hallelujah, for that, right? And the reason we don't do what the people and priests did in Malachi's day is because Jesus came to be our perfect sacrifice on the cross. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins once and for all. Woo! Yes! And so now we don't have to offer animal sacrifices all the time repeatedly in atonement for our sins like they did in the Old Testament. However, God is quick to tell us that in response to what Jesus has done for us, the only reasonable response is to now give God our best. Think of it this way. How can we gladly receive God's best? and not gladly give God our best. We must consider what our worship declares about God's worth to us. Is God worth enough to give God what's best when it comes to my time, my money, my comfort, my family, and even my life? Is God worth enough to you to give God the best of those resources? Worship is worthless when we give God what's simply left over, not what's best. Number two, worship is worthless when we make God trivial and not great. Remember, worthless worship begins with a low view of God. We fail to see the greatness of God. And so God tells the people in verse 11, from the rising of the sun even to his going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, what God is telling the people today, I mean back then, if God's name is no longer great to you, as the children of Israel, then God's name will be great among the Gentiles and the nations of the world. And then God repeats the charge because he knows his people back then are just like us. We need it repeated to us because we're slow to connect the dots sometimes. And so he says in verse 12, look at it, but you profane it. The it refers to God's name in verse 11. In that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food is contemptible. This word profane, it means to make something that, it, to make something that is, should be held high in esteem, and we bring it down low. It's, it, it's the idea you take something that's extraordinary, and you bring it down low, and you make it ordinary. Something that is great, but you make it trivial. Something that should be significant, because it is and you make it insignificant. That's the idea of profane. And that's what they were doing to God's name, which represents God's person. How? How were they doing this? They were making his name by trivial by offering blind, lame, and sick sacrifices upon the altar. And you go to verse 13, not only that, but if you can imagine, they were even offering God animals that were stolen. 
They didn't even want to give God their leftovers, so they go take somebody else's leftovers. Such actions proclaim that they put no value on God's name. These sacrifices cost them nothing at all. They did their duty, but they were just going through the motions of worship. The tragic irony of all of this, not just in Malachi's day, but it happens every day in our own churches across America, and even in our church today, folks. Even in my own heart, I'm guilty too. The tragic irony of worthless worship is that we are actually gathered before the greatness of God corporately. But our vision of God, our valuation of God is so misplaced. We miss the beauty of worshiping God corporately on a Sunday morning like this, but also individually during the week. We miss the beauty of great, God's great love. We miss the beauty of God's amazing grace in our lives. We miss the beauty of glorifying God's name with our lives. And as a result, we just go through the motions of worship without seeing the greatness of God as we worship. We actually become bored with the most amazing reality in all the universe. God Himself. We're bored with God. Ravi Zacharias said, when man is bored with God, even heaven does not have a better alternative. And when we're bored with God, you will soon begin feeling that the worship of God is a burden to you. Which brings us to the third essence of worthless worship. Worship is worthless when we feel it is a burden and not a blessing. And perhaps if you're really honest with your own heart, you're at that place in your life even today when you feel like worship is a burden instead of a joy. Perhaps you've walked through the doors this morning and that is the essence of your heart. It was a burden for you to get out of bed and come to church this morning to worship our great God. You would never verbalize that. You know better than to verbalize it, to express it, but it's what you feel in your heart. And that's how the people of Malachi's day felt. According to verse 13, look at this. They have fallen so low in their view of God that they are saying, you also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord. If they were living today, it would sound like this. Oh, man, it's Sunday again. Didn't we just do this? Again? Come to church again? Grow group again? With those people? Can't we get a group with better food and less kids? Discovery hour? Are you sure you want me to come earlier? Get up earlier? Serve on Sundays? I've been serving for years. And I'm tired of it. Does it really matter anyway? Yes, it matters, folks. But if you're at a point where you feel, oh, what a weariness. And that's what's in your heart. And then you actually sneer at it in disgust. Whoa. Now there are two ways that we experience weariness. Some of us experience weariness of ministry. Others may experience weariness from ministry. Weariness of ministry is when you just start going through the motions. You get hard-hearted. You get sick of it. You don't care anymore. People become a burden to you. And there's no joy in your heart. Why? Because you're weary of ministry, of worship. And I pray we never get to this place in serving the Lord and worshiping the Lord. But if perhaps you are at this place in your own heart, then let me encourage you to take a look and do it anew and get a fresh vision of the greatness of God because that is the only solution to renewing your zeal for worship of God. But the reality is, we will grow weary from ministry. 
How many know what I'm talking about? Sure. You're going to be tired. You're going to be exhausted from serving the Lord. The Apostle Paul talks about being poured out like a drink offering. Athletes say they will leave it all on the field. Jesus, he never got weary of ministry, but there were times on earth when Jesus got weary from ministry. You know what Jesus did at those times? He would take time then to replenish physically with rest and replenish spiritually with prayer and communion with the Lord. And we must do the same when we grow weary from doing ministry because that is a reality of doing ministry. Now Malachi ends his message on worship with a warning. And I need to be fair to God's Word and give you the warning. Notice in verse 14, he says, But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and makes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. And here's the warning. Don't try to deceive the Lord in your worship. Malachi, he's warning the people. He loves the people. And he's telling them, don't promise to give God your best, and then when it comes time to give, you try to slip on the altar of the worst of your animals. And then you keep the best one for yourself. God knows what we promise to give Him, and He sees what we actually give Him. So don't try to deceive the Lord. Remember Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts? We studied that just last year. They tried to deceive the Lord in their giving, and they dropped dead in the church as a result of it. Talk about the curse of worthless worship. Now, in closing, here's the question. Why? Why what? Why should we honor God with meaningful worship instead of worthless worship? Well, here's why. God says in verse 14, for I am a great king. That's why we worship Him. And that's why we bring Him meaningful worship and not worthless worship. That's why we honor God he is our great king, and as the Son of God, listen, Jesus Christ is a great king who is worthy of meaningful worship. Jesus Christ is the king of kings. Our king got off his throne. Our king came down to earth. Our king humbled himself. Our king died on the cross. Our king rose again. Our king now gives us forgiveness of sin. He offers us eternal life in him. Our king gives us a mission to make his name great among the nations so that everybody will hear how great our king is. That's why Jesus Christ is worthy of your worship. How then should we respond to our great King, Jesus Christ? Listen, folks, there's only one response that is worthy of our great King. You say, what's that? Live fully devoted as a living sacrifice to the Lord. That is our only reasonable response. Paul picks up on this same topic when he writes in Romans 12.1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Listen, if you have any idea, if you have any concept of all how great Jesus is as our King, then you don't see worship as a burden. You see it as a blessing. Amen? It's not something that you have to do. It's something that you get to do as a child of the great king. Listen, worship is not about playing church. There are enough so-called Christ followers in this country alone that play church Sunday after Sunday that we don't need that here at Glenwood. This is not about playing church. It's about living fully devoted to Jesus Christ, our great King. Listen, God did not sacrifice His Son simply so that He could declare us worthy. God sacrificed His Son so that we might declare His name worthy as our great King. You say, how do we do that? Each and every day, 
by his grace, we live fully devoted to him. We offer our lives as living sacrifice on his altar, and it becomes the sweetest smelling aroma that rises up to our God. And he no longer says, I have no pleasure in you. I love your worship as my children. What is your worship? What's it reveal about what you think of the one you worship? Let's pray. Lord, we we pause to come before your throne of grace. In my, how we need your grace this morning. We need your mercy because, Lord, we are a needy, needy people. And, Lord, there are so many times where we offer you worthless worship as your children. When you are worthy of the best that we can bring. And so, Lord, I ask that through this message, through your message of Malachi, through our response time now, that you would begin to fill our hearts with a vision of your greatness. And through your cross, we would see how great you are. And Lord, that we would respond appropriately with our lives to live fully devoted to you to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to you. And so, Lord, do a work in our hearts that only you can do by your word and by your spirit. And I pray that as a group here, as a people of God, we would do business before you as needed. We would confess our sins. We would receive your forgiveness. And we would recommit our lives to worship you with meaningful worship. It's in these things we pray in your name. Amen. The praise team's going to sing as they do. I encourage you. You respond. God's word has done its job. You respond how you need to, how God is directing in your own heart.